Hi, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to the webinar. Tonight's webinar is a really important one because I think what it does is it provides a kind of invitation and to, to shift our focus from what's going on in the life of our child to what's going on in our life and really what has gone on in our life. And so like a lot of my work, like a lot of the stuff that I talk about, it really is an invitation to do one's own work and to look back. And I'm going to talk about some of the principles involved in looking at our family of origin how it impacts us, how today the decisions, the relationships, the, the things that we engage in in our life, the dramas that we hold on to are oftentimes a reflection of our unlooked at, unfinished business from our own family of origin. And like a lot of webinars, I want to start out by saying it's not about blame or pointing the finger. In fact, that game doesn't work anyway because if one person points the finger at a previous generation, then really the previous generation can point it back and, and so on and so on. But we, we do come to understand ourselves better. We do get more clear the more we are aware of the dance of our original family, the family that we grew up in. So with that introduction, let me give you a few quotes to get us started, to get us motivated for tonight. Um, one of my favorite quotes, these, these are all quotes that I've used before, and so I picked out three of my favorite family of origin quotes. And Tion Dayton says, our children don't become who we tell them to be. They become who we are. As a therapist, I need no convincing that children live in the effective space between their parents. They live in their unspoken and sometimes unfelt emotional world. Much of parenting is implicit rather than, expli rather than explicit, which is why children become who we are rather than who we tell them to be. Our children drink us up like little sponges. We are showing them who we want them to become. And, and again, there's so much in, in this field of the family that a child absorbs. And it's not the conscious stuff. It's not the overt messages or the rules or the mantras. Those things do get in there also, but it is how we are with each other, how we are in this world, how we look at the world, how emotional differentiated we are. That, that is how clear we are in our boundaries, right? What is our, uh, is our emotional proximity, proximity, excuse me, proximity to another person like? And that's what our children really learn and really mirror in our lives. And this is from Daniel Siegel. A couple of quotes from him. Research in the field of child development has demonstrated that a child's security of attachment to parents is very strong, strongly connected to the parent's understanding of their own early life experience. Research has clearly demonstrated that our children's attachment to us will be influenced by what happened to us when we were young if we do not come to process and understand those experiences. So part of what we, we know is that it's not just what happens to you, but what you do with it, how you make sense out of it. And in a lot of ways, that comes out of an effort. Tonight at the end of this, I'm going to be offering up uh, a scholarship spot for our intensive that's coming up next week. It's late notice, but we're deciding to give away a scholarship spot for next Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday's Finding You intensive. And really what it is, it's looking back and understanding this. And when we can make sense out of it, our responses to others become more flexible and intentional. Right? We have less trauma response, less reactive knee-jerk responses to others. We can be more clear about what we think and feel, and we can tolerate what other people think and feel with more patience, more understanding. So again, the, the research demonstrates that we, we've always kind of thought this, but now the research is lining up with our theory and our intuition. 
And then, of course, my one of my favorite quotes from the beginning of our book, The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller. Experience has taught us that what that we have only one enduring weapon in our struggle against mental illness, the emotional discovery of the truth about the unique history of our childhood. And I even was able to bring in the typo from my last slide. But part of what she's saying, part of what Daniel Siegel is saying is we can look at it. We can explore it. And, and this happens for you. It also happens for your child. That's why I always say one of the most important assignments, if I only could pick one written assignment for every client, and I only could pick one, and of course I'm glad that I don't have to do that, I would choose for it to be the impact letter that a child writes to a parent. That tells me more about somebody's accountability than the letter of accountability. And that also creates a platform or, or a springboard for me to help the child, whether it's young, adult, or adolescent, begin to unravel. Unravel the, the mysteries of their own childhood, why they think and feel the way that they do. And, and if we're doing our work at parent, as parents, looking back in, at our childhood, looking back at who we are, looking, looking back at what made us, then we actually have a capacity to listen to our children as they struggle to make sense out of the childhood that we helped to create, that, that we contributed to in them. So those are some initial thoughts, inspirations. So beginning to talk about events, you, you know, we, we know that, that life events, stressors, traumas, divorce, alcoholic parent, right, moving, bullying, we, we could go down the list of, you know, a parent dying, somebody getting sick, car accident. We could look down the list of life events and we could say, these have somewhat predictable impacts on, on children in terms of their level of functioning and, and mental health. However, we do find mitigating variables, variables which if present, in the positive sense, if present, can mitigate the trauma or the stress. And if not present, tend to leave a child vulnerable to the effects of that trauma or that stress. So that's the theory. That's what my research during my doctoral degree was about, was looking at what would mitigate life trauma and life stress. So here's some of the research around that. The moderating effects is that if people, if families, have roles that are flexible, age appropriate and clear. So that means it's not rigid, it's not black and white, it's not reactive. It changes as the child matures and ages. And of course there, there's, right, there, there's variance in that because Sometimes, as many of you know, your 17-year-old acts a lot more like a 12-year-old. So there's, of course, adjustment. But that's part of the flexibility, right? That's why you're going to have a different rule for one of your 12-year-olds. And then later on, you're going to have a different rule for another 12-year-old. So you're going to be flexible. You're going to evolve. The situation is going to evolve. The situation is going to be different from child to child. And that it's age appropriate. And this can be one of the things that if we experienced a lot of trauma or sometimes we experience trauma with one of our children and then we tend to see the, the signs, the behavior, the difficulties of another child and because of our own trauma, because our child, our children expose us to trauma, right? They create trauma in our lives. Then we might begin to respond to the other child as if they are potentially going to turn out like the one that struggled significantly. So, so it's important, again, that we unravel, unpack, work on this, talk to a therapist, this is probably my, my webinar where I'm going to encourage, invite, and suggest the need for parental therapy or parental coaching more than any other webinar. And then, of course, clear variables. And it's important. You know, one of the 
greatest signs of, of mental health in a family system is that the overt rules, the overt mantras, principles, ideals, values are consistent with the covert behavior. So when, when we're saying don't feel with our words subtly, covertly, but we're saying you can feel anything you want to, that's crazy making. When we're trying to tell our children how to feel by, by talking them into it. When we're on, on one hand preaching autonomy, but on the other hand really patterning or setting an example of blame because of our own guilt, because of our own insecurities. When we start to mix up the messages between <clears throat> the overt and the covert, it can be very confusing, if not frightening and anxiety producing for the child. And again, all of these things apply to the child, the childhood of, of our children that we've helped to, to create, to contribute to, and also our own childhood. I, I don't really see a, a big difference in the value of this information because it applies to both. And an important piece is developing a healthy level of differentiation that is void of control. And there are so many examples in our life of when we are trying to control the other, not just control how they feel, but control the outcome, right? We even bend or sacrifice or compromise our values at times to try to manage behavior, ironically, instead of practicing the difficulty of setting up boundaries and then letting people choose and then executing those consequences, those limits, those boundaries, right? That, that's something that's hard for all of us. So when we can get out of control in, in our marital and couple relationships, as well as our parent-to-child relationships, we start to develop healthy differentiation. When we can understand the difference between how we feel and what happens to us, that those aren't necessarily the same thing. That my feelings are my responsibility. They come from my thoughts and my beliefs. Absolutely, people and events in our lives are stressors and triggers. And how I respond to it is mine. Instead of blaming each other for how we feel. And even farther, how we react to the other. This is what is described. This is all in the field of differentiation. And differentiation is passed on. And part of what it helps to do is healthy differentiation, more differentiation, more clarity between people and inside of each individual. The more clear that is, the more that it encourages healthy development of self, right? If I can let my child feel things, if I can respond to boundaries without being reactive, if I can own my own feelings, if I can make my feelings, my behavior, my mental health, my project, right? If I can do all of that, I'm going to be much more capable of helping a child develop a sense of self. If my anxiety, if my fear, if I'm triggered by my child's behavior and trying to control them, I'm going to do less to contribute to a healthy development of self. Um, and, and, and giving a place for belonging, giving a place where it's safe. I even have parents say, well, my son, my daughter is a young adult. They're not going to live at home. You, you still can to the day that you, to your last breath, you can still provide a home, so to speak, a, a place where it's safe. You can do that with a stranger. I do that with clients, right, for better or for worse, when I meet with them and they carry that with them. So creating a, a place for belonging, for this is, it's okay, it's, it's safe for me to be here. I want to be here. Right? That's an important piece of it. And then, of course, that comes with healthy connection, communication. And I, I added this piece. It really is providing healthy attachment 
And that really does or is manifested by our capacity to listen, to really listen, and then to manage all the feelings that come up for us when we listen. That really, that's one difference between a good therapist and an average parent, right? And that's why it's so much easier for me to listen to your children. That's why I get so much less triggered by your children than I do my own children. I I have that capacity to do it. And I I, I try to practice it with my children. I actually use my experience as a therapist to try to develop that in my family. There are four basic relationship patterns that govern where problems develop in a family. As tension develops, adaptation in these patterns defines the problem. So marital conflict is going to be an area where symptoms are going to become manifested in others often. Sometimes in, uh, classically speaking, in family systems, family of origin, where we talk about the identified patient or the scapegoat, right? If you can imagine, and then family systems theory really looks at the family as the organism, right? It's one organism. And so when one person develops a pathology, it is a, a symptom that the system is off. It's, it's, it's part, so the system needs looking at. The system needs treatment. That's the family system's perspective and model. And marital conflict is a classic way. And and oftentimes, sometimes overtly, but sometimes even covertly, parents blame the children for the marital conflict. Do you see the stress you're causing your mother, your father, and I? You know, what what, what you're putting on it, what, what we're devolving to in our marriage is because of what you're doing, right? We, we say those kinds of things. I hear those things said, sometimes very clearly just like that. It is true that children are stressors. They can have behavioral problems, they can have physical problems. Just the, the normal angst of growing up and protecting them can be anxiety producing. And it is our responsibility to own our, our stuff, to own our relationships. Of course, dysfunction in one spouse can also lead to dysfunction in others in the family. Speaking from a family system's perspective, impairment, difficulties in one or more children can exacerbate other parts of the system. When there is an emotional distance problem, that means too close or too far apart. Oftentimes, classically, for example, in eating disordered family, the the, the kind of it's more than a cliche. It's just a, a common pattern is that you have an over-involved one parent. Oftentimes, it's the mother. And then you have a distant emotional father. That, that would be the, the cliche version of things. But, but like I said, it's more than a cliche. It's actually a pattern that we see commonly. So, so that's an example where the systems ha- has members of the systems have oriented themselves in relationship to each other in a certain way, and then the symptom in the child serves a function, really a stabilizing function in some ways. But in some ways, I like to think of it as it it shows the system that it needs help, and that's why you guys end up on a webinar. That's why you end up on a parent phone call. That's why your weekly phone calls with our therapists are really opportunities to learn and to hear new things, right, to learn a different way of communicating, to to adopt a, a different kind of sensibility about being in the world, right? We're asking you to be in the world in a different way. Hopefully we're providing opportunities for you to explain yourself and we listen well, that, that's ideal. And the end result is to invite you into a different kind of way of participating in all of your relationships. One of which, the most important of which, the one that is of a focus in our program, of course, is the parent-child relationship.
Like I said, there's this idea that Murray Bone, one of the fathers of, of family therapy, had where he measured differentiation on a scale from zero to 100. Nobody really arrives at 100, but that's the ideal that we could imagine, right? We might have moments. I have moments of 100 during a week, one or two. But, but he, he would chart people and kind of give them a, a measure. And let's say they were on 75 on a scale from zero to 100. His idea was that the children in that family would also be within a short range of that 75. And we have fantasies. We all have fantasies that we have successfully escaped our family of origin, much more so than is often the case, because we change the, 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 the paint color, right? We change the scenery. But, but this, this core fundamental sense of being in relationships with people is often about the same. That's his theory. And it takes a great deal of work to get far beyond that. So two parents are going to marry each other. 75s are going to find somebody around themselves to partner up with, right? A 75 doesn't want to marry a 95 or vice versa. A 50 cannot relate to a 75 and vice versa. Right? It's uncomfortable. And so 50s marry 50-somethings, or 48, or 47, and so forth. And then they raise children in that same range. And, and that is one of the great, again, great pieces of work, great humbling experiences of being a client, is to say, yes, I, I didn't like a lot of things my mother and father did. I'm angry or hurt by some of those, to, to a greater or lesser extent for all of us. But how am I the same? Right. What, what have I absorbed? Like Tion Dayton said earlier. And how, what kind of work do I need to do to break the cycle and, and take a significant step up on the scale of differentiation? We move from automatic and unconscious responses to active and conscious responses, right? That, that's, our, our, that's the goal is to move out of that knee-jerk, unconscious, don't know, don't know why I did it, not aware of my feelings, to I'm aware, I'm aware why I reacted with frustration yesterday. I'm aware why I raised my voice. I'm aware that I was just shaming you. I just had a phone call this week with a father who was giving an example of a way that he might respond to his son. And his whole description was trying to get his son to think and feel a certain way about something. And I stopped him and I said, try not to do it. Try to just let him feel. And the father then two or three times after that finally broke out in laughter. Two or three times after that tried to come up with another version and then laughed out loud and said, you're right. Everything I'm doing is trying to get him to feel something about what I'm about to tell him, what I'm going to say to him in our next phone call, in our, in our next session. So we begin to see that. We begin to shine the light on the dark places. Running from your family of origin, right, more importantly is becoming aware of it. A lot of times in therapy, we want to run away from symptoms and problems too quickly. If you run away too quickly, if you don't take time to understand them, you really don't address the issue at its root. You're addressing it at the surface, right? You're cutting the weed off the, at the surface. So more important or, or more fundamental than symptom removal is understanding who we are, where we came from, and embracing it. And because of our shame, because we don't want to be that, right? Because of our projection, because we see that in our mom and in our father and in our, in our, in our older, the older adults in our lives, because we see all that and project that all up, and we don't want it to be in here, Right? And so we don't address it because it's too painful or terrifying to see it in here. Learning to forgive. Don't move to forgiveness immediately. Take your time. But forgiveness 
for, for your children and for you is a sign of mental health. That's why when parents become at times paralyzed because they're afraid their children won't forgive them, they're really recreating a pattern from their own family of origin. Forgiveness is for the person doing the forgiving, not for the person who's being forgiven. If that's a word, forgiven. It is important to give that back to them, to understand them and to see them. And the more you do your work, the more capable you are of hearing your child when they said, you don't listen to me. You didn't love me. You weren't there for me. You yelled at me. Right? If, if we have our, our capacity present, our response is always, thank you for telling me. How can I help? doesn't mean we're going to give them everything that they want and, and violate our own personal boundaries, but we can listen and empathize and connect if we have that foundation, if we've developed it, if we have enough courage to be aware of our own limitations. And, and again, I'm, I'm going a little off track, but this relationship to forgiveness, right? Forgiveness is for me. When I forgive people, it's for my healing. And if I do it in a deep way, I'm going to also feel the pain and the hurt and the sadness that is being protected by the lack of forgiveness. And I won't give a speech about forgive, but doesn't mean that you don't have to give your boundaries up. But I'll just say that. I mean, that, that's, we know that. Like I said, we select mates with similar levels of differentiation, slightly more, slightly less. Um, as we do this work, we're going to have an increased level of marital stability. We're going to feel healthier. We're going to sleep better. We're going to have less stress. Um, it really does filter. And this goes back to something I say on a lot of these webinars. This is not about parenting, right? That, that's the context with which we're talking, having this discussion, right? That's the context in which we're having the discussion. But this is about being a different kind of person, developing a new animal in us. And that's going to have an impact everywhere in our life. And we have this idea that we can compartmentalize. And something about our culture sometimes encourages us that we can compartmentalize, right? I hear people all the time say, well, at work, I do it this way, and it works. Well, that's not a family, right? Being a surgeon is not being a father. Being a CEO is not being a mother, right? Being a foreman is not being a mother or father. Those are different things, and a company is not a family. And, of course, unless you run it like one, it can be more like one, but it's important to understand that compartmentalizing doesn't work. I love this story from, actually, this was from my undergrad. I've told it. It's been a long time since I told it, so I'll retell it now. <clears throat> a story of a, a young married couple, and the wife was making a, just to make it a cliche and a stereotype, the wife was making a roast beef for her husband. And she brought the, the roast beef, and the ends of it were cut off, which is, he said to her, I love the ends of the roast beef. It's, it's crusty, and it's, my, it's the most flavorful part for me. I enjoy it the most. Why do you, why'd you cut the ends off? And she said, well, that's the way my mother did it. So he goes to his mother-in-law and he says, why did you cut the ends of the roast beef off? And she says, well, that's the way my mother did it. So during the holidays, he asked the grandmother, why did you cut the ends of your roast beef off? And she said, because my oven was too small and my pan was too small and I didn't have enough room. And it's just a, a story. I don't know if it was true or not, but it's a story to illustrate that unless we evaluate, unless we challenge our family of origin has taught us. We, we are in jeopardy of maintaining patterns that have lost their usefulness, that are not relevant. 
And so that's part of our work is to begin. That's why I said the impact letter that your child writes to you is one of the most important assignments, if not the most important. And how you respond to it. Again, our goal is not to get you to respond to an impact letter in an ideal way. Our goal is to use that response as a way to say, how do you deal with it when your child is angry or frustrated or hurt or sad or scared? or has delusions about what colleges or what responsibility and consequence. How do you deal with it? And using the response to the impact letter is a way that we help teach those principles too. And in the weekly phone calls and the letter coaching we do around that is a way we're really trying to get you to, again, change the relationship that you have with your child and with your child's problems. For the transmission of issues, to go from one generation to one generation, we look at these principles. The more covert, the less conscious they are, the more likely these negative patterns are going to be passed down, right? So the more subtle, the more unspoken, the more shame that it is buried beneath, the more likely that the transmission is going to move to the next generation. Um, codependency and addiction we see those patterns. Codependent, codependence is kind of the, just another word for lack of differentiation. It, it, it just is that. So if you know what codependency is, then you know what a, a zero is on that zero to 100 scale that Dr. Bowen talked about on the differentiation scale. And when you know what the opposite of codependency is, when you can imagine the ideally the opposite, then you know what that 100 represents on that scale. So codependency and addiction Patterns of self-medicating, patterns of not wanting to feel, patterns of a lack of presence and mindfulness, all of those things get transmitted. The reactivity and dependency that we have on it. I, I thought not too long ago, a few years ago, I thought to need someone was not, not only the equivalent of love, I thought it was maybe even better than love. And as I'm growing up a little, I'm realizing those are two very, very different things. And to need somebody is not to love them. That's something different. It has a different quality to it. It is much less self-centered, right? much less narcissistic, much less whole. So that's a thought that I'll throw in there. Mood disorders traits and depressed narcissistic traits are, are things that we pass around. Depressed narcissism is, is a, a, a phrase that I first heard from Irving Alom, great therapist, famous therapist, um, where he said most people imagine narcissism as this inflated, kind of arrogant you know, ego, huge ego person. But many people suffer from depressed narcissism, which is everything is still about me, but it's bad, right? If you walk by me in the hallway and don't say hi, I must have done something wrong, it's about me. When I see two, see two people whispering across the room at a party, they're talking about me, right? When, you, when my child gets mad at me, I've done something wrong. When my child writes an angry letter, I have failed. So depressed narcissism is, is a different kind of presentation, but we often have this self-centered. Instead of the opposite, which is if two people are across the hall, or excuse me, across the room at a party talking and, and giggling, and they happen to glance over at me, I, I wonder to myself, I wonder what they're laughing about. I, I want to go listen to that. Or somebody walks by me in the hallway and doesn't acknowledge me, my thought is, I wonder if they're having an okay day today. I wonder where their mind is, right? We, we have different thoughts when we're not suffering from this narcissistic wound. Mood disorder traits are often transmitted. Anxiety, I've, I've said this before, anxiety is kind of a, a, the common cold of mental health, right? And the amount of it in a family 
is, is shared to some extent. It might look different, but it's shared to some extent. And we pass that. Our anxiety, let me say this as clear as I can. Our anxiety negatively affects our capacity to parent effectively in a healthy way and negatively affects our children in a multitude of ways. And none of us are exempt from it. We're just different. We're just on a different place of the skill, scale. So our work is to become to manage our anxiety and to not make excuses for it and blame it, right? Even though our child might be doing something horrifically dangerous or scary, everybody in the world, including me, would, including me, would show you empathy and say, of course, that's, that's nerve-wracking. Of course, that's terrifying. And how are you going to manage it? How are you going? How are you going to manage your anxiety other than trying to get your child to change their behavior so you're not anxious? I mean, that's it. That's what a lack of differentiation. Change your behavior so I feel okay. My feelings are your responsibility. You're cutting cutting school. You're cutting on yourself. You're doing drugs. Your sexual promiscuity is causing me to be a nervous wreck. Change it so I feel okay. Difference is, we can say, I'm worried about your cutting. I'm worried about your school problems. I'm worried about your depression, your drug abuse. And I'm okay, but I'm going to take action with that. I believe that there's some things here that I can do that can be helpful and supportive of that. That's a very different thing than change your behavior so I feel okay. The more empathy we have, and empathy, of course, comes from a place of strength and wholeness, right? The the lack of empathy, the lack of connection, in essence, comes from a place of insecurity and, and, and fracturedness, brokenness, fear. Our communication patterns <clears throat> are kind of the the, the 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 it's the writing it's 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 the what looks what we first see, and that's why I love letter writing therapy. That's why for people that don't have their children or have never had their children in Willis therapy, they'll never really appreciate in many ways the value of family therapy through writing. It's it better in some ways than every other version of family therapy that I've ever participated in, including my own. So we can look at those communication patterns in black and white. We can coach around those. That's why even when I work with people in an outpatient setting, I'll often ask them to write letters to each other so that we can talk about it. Rules about time, money, and roles in the family are often replicated in the next generation. And then competition is something that I think is not something we think about but, but I see a lot. I realized in my own family that my father was competing with me. I've seen myself competing with my children. And I, I think that's crazy. But it's there. It's present. I see it. I see it in other families. It comes out sarcastically. It comes out with this idea of a zero-sum game. That is that if there's a winner, there's a loser. Right? There can only be one good or one great. So that's a tough one. But we, get, we can begin to look at ourselves and are we competing with our children. And that's a, that's a heck of an awakening, right? That's a, that's a big, difficult thing to wake up to when we start to see our competitive patterns with our children. I had a professor who said, we replicate to repair. This was her sort of optimistic version of how we recreate things in our family. We're repeating those old relationships until we can repair them. And when we repair them, we stop repeating them. And I'm going to read the poem that some of you know about in just a minute to talk about that. We recreate our old relationships and patterns in order to understand and heal ourselves. It feels natural to us. Like I said, it's not very comfortable if you're a 55 to hang around somebody who's a 75, right? 
you don't match up well on that differentiation scale that I talked about earlier. We are seeking to meet our unmeetable needs, right? It is impossible for a spouse to be the magical other, right? The one who completes us. Not, not all the time because they're human and because they have limitations that they will bump up against. But we think, we actually imagine that that's what love is, that this other person makes me whole. That, that, that's not possible. The other person can provide a wonderful, safe, healing context for you to develop and heal to be whole. But when we ask others, when we ask our parents to meet our, our infinite, unmeetable needs, it's, it's impossible because of their humanness. And then at times, we're asking our children to meet all of our needs, right? We, we care about whether, what they think about us, whether they, whether they look up to us. Right? We pay attention to how much they love us, like us, forgive us, are angry at us. We start to measure our decisions based on that. We start to make decisions based on whether our children are happy with us. Right? And those are needs that, that did or didn't get met to a lesser extent in our own childhood that we're playing out with them. We recreate the same script in our current relationship until they lose their shine to us. It's another way of saying replicate to repair. When old patterns are healed, they become uninteresting to us. And emotional cutoff, which many of us participate in is not the solution moving from los angeles to new york doesn't fix anything right saying i'm never going to talk to my ex-spouse my father my brother doesn't fix anything it might be a decision that is made because one person needs to heal it might be the outcome of health but in and of itself it doesn't heal that's why divorce and then remarrying again often find that person in the same kind of relationship because there was no change that happened, no first order change. It was just the, the surface stuff. Some of you read this, but it's worth quoting here. This is the autobiography in five short chapters by Portia Nelson. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am hopeless. It's my own fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it there. I still fall in. It's a habit, but my eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. In chapter five, I walk down another street. And I've used this in parent groups. In fact, I've used it with some of you in parent groups. This is something that, you know, print up. I don't know if you all know this, but you can get this copy of the slides when we post them to the portal. You can get them. You can also request them by emailing uh, webinar at drbradreedy.com. Or you can look this up on the web. It's everywhere. But, um, you know, you look at this and say, where am I today? Where am I with this issue? Right? And this is just the truth. This is just how we do it. This is what it looks like when we really do heal and resolve something. And it's rare, folks. It's rare to, to, to resolve and to move on and to walk down another street. We constantly find ourselves somewhere in chapter two, three, and four, playing the victim, blaming others, not owning it. It's difficult to own it, right? It's hard to own it. So don't take yourself too seriously. This is not about blame or guilt. I mean, a lot of people, when they read my book, they'll say to me, oh my gosh, I feel like such a horrible parent. I always say, that wasn't the goal, right? That's, that's your stuff bumping up against my book. That's what my book does when there's a lot of shame there, for sure. It's just, a, it's just saying, look at this. Look at this. 
And, and you can even, like the father did on the phone call that I shared with you earlier, when he tried to rephrase the thing that he was going to tell his son, he laughed at himself and said, I'm doing the same thing over and over again. I'm just trying to control how he feels. Understand your limitations. Accept, not accept them like I'm not going to do anything, but, but be able to hold them, be able to see them, be able to know them. Right? It takes some work on shame to be able to do that. There's this idea in relationships that sometimes we think we can always win. I talk about this with uh, borderline personality disorders. You don't get to win with a borderline personality disorder, but you get to choose how to lose. Same way with an addict or an alcoholic, right? Or any really conflictual relationship. Instead of thinking, how can I win? You think, I'm going to choose the best way to lose, which has integrity, is true to myself, is authentic, is honest, is loving. If I do those things, I'm still going to lose, according to them. But I'm going to win. Taking care of yourself and know that you need to. Exercise, healthy. You know, we believe in evoke even more than we did before about whole health, right? Looking at yourself. And none of us are perfectly whole healthy, but we can be working on it. And we can be kind to ourselves when we mistake or struggle over and over again. Don't use shame as a behavioral technique. Um, that's for me as much as for you, right? Shame is the, if, if anxiety is the common cold of mental health, shame is the cancer of mental health, right? It is the thing that destroys us, that gets in the way of our healing, that gets in our way of our asking for help, that prevents us from being able to look at ourselves honestly. And if we use shame and intimidation and fear and control to try to control our children, we pass on a legacy that, that we really don't want to pass on. Even though, in, in the, I always joke about how the reason that we use shame is because it's so effective at getting behavioral change in, in, in the immediate. Forgive yourself. Forgive your parents, right? Move, move through it. First, for a lot of you, it's, it's okay to get mad at them. I've worked with clients where they've, I can't tell you how many parents I've worked with over the years who have said to me, um, uh, my parents were nearly perfect. And that just can't be true. And then sometimes if I work with them long enough, they'll tell me a story and I'll point and I'll say, you know, did you hear what you just said? That was, that was kind of crazy, right? Did you hear that? And I said, well, it was no big deal. And I said, no, it was a big deal. You don't recognize it as a big deal, but it was. It wasn't okay to say that. And it wasn't because they were bad people. They loved you. But this required kind of loyalty that looks like absolute admiration doesn't need to be there for you to love them. Right? I don't need that for my children. I don't want that for my children. That will only come at the expense of their mental health if I need them to admire me, if I need them to think I was a great dad. So move through the anger, the hurt, the sadness, the, 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 the humanness of it all, and, and learn to forgive your parents. And then, of course, allow your, child to do, allow your children to do that too. Oftentimes, our children become fixated on a lack of forgiveness because at an unconscious level, we need them to forgive us. And in so needing them to forgive us, we are unable to properly provide them a, a healthy context, a healthy container for them to feel their anger and their hurt at or towards us. Learn and practice the I feel statements in order to increase intra-psychic and interpersonal differentiation. It is the aspirin, tonight's metaphors, it is the aspirin, right, the Tylenol, the Advil of mental health, the I feel statement. It is the, the, the most simple thing that we can do to improve some really deep level things. 
And it will begin to help illustrate for us, to help us to, to learn, to see, to become aware of where we struggle, where we're limited. So, all right, live question, any live questions? When you refer to 50 marrying 50 and not relating to 75, can you elaborate more on what that looks like? Yeah, um, so, so some of you joined a bit after the beginning, and I taught this at the beginning. Murray Bowen has a scale from 0 to 100 on which he measures differentiation, which is two things. Interpersonal differentiation is um, the amount of separateness and connection that are, are both present at the same time. And then intrapsychic differentiation is my ability to see the difference between what happens to me, what I, what I, the events in my life, my beliefs about those events, and how I feel, right? So maybe we'll kind of see those, be conscious of those, not become reactive in, in and with those. And so let's say, for example, it's, I'll, I'll use the example of somebody walking. Let, let's say you're the kind of person that walks down the hall, and if somebody doesn't say hi to you, you take it personally, right? Let's give that example. I'll give another one to illustrate it. And so you worry about it. You might reach out to that person. You might need reassurance from that person. You might talk to friends about it. You might just feel discouraged about it. You might feel insecure and ruminate on that, right? That's your, you being at about a 50, right? I'm just using that number. You're not going to want to hang around somebody who's an 80, and they're not going to want to hang around you because they're going to walk around and say, no, I was just busy thinking about something. I didn't notice you. I was thinking about something else. They won't have the same inclination to do that kind of ruminating with you, right? And 80s don't want to be around 50s because they don't want to have to take care of them in that way, right? Like my wife says to me, when if I'm on a business trip and I don't call her, what she's learned to tell herself is he must be taking care of himself and busy. Whereas years ago, she might say, why isn't he calling me? I miss him. Is he okay? Right? So those are dev different levels of differentiation. I got an email from a friend this weekend where he was struggling, and I reached out to him and I said, I hope you're okay. Let me know if you need anything. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Anything I can do. And I gave a couple examples. I, I shot that email back. And my wife says, you should call him. And I said, no, I, I don't want to call him. I mean, that's not my, that's not what I do. And that's not what I would want if I was him. If he wants to talk, he can ask me. I've offered to talk, so on and so forth. So that gives you an example of a different level of differentiation, right? how grounded, how clear, where are our boundaries, how much anxiety, how much codependency. It's like somebody who's not very codependent at all isn't going to marry somebody who's hugely codependent, right? It won't work. They won't match up. They won't make sense to each other. That's kind of what it means. I hope that helps. Somebody who's very controlling around feelings, right, is not going to be comfortable around somebody who's very, very autonomous around feelings. It's not going to make sense. What's the difference between differentiation and detachment? Very similar. If, if differentiation, if the zero on the differentiation skill is enmeshment and um, over-involvement and over-identification and codependency, the hundred is healthy detachment, healthy attachment, right? That's what I always teach is healthy attachment and healthy detachment are the same thing. So a hundred is perfectly healthy detachment, attachment, and zero is enmeshment, fusion, reactiveness, right? chaos, drama, codependency. Those are just different 
verbiage for the same things. Okay. All right. Let's go through two sides and then I'll go into any off topic questions. I told you earlier, I have one scholarship spot. So if you have a friend, the only thing you'd have to do is get here. Once you're here, we're going to give away a scholarship spot for the Finding You Intensive. That's for any adult. You can go to our webpage, go, go to our programs and look at intensives. December 10th through the 13th at St. George, Utah at our, at our Oasis. We have a spot that we want to offer for the holidays as a thank you. So one scholarship spot for anybody on here, any client, just email. In fact, email me, uh, brad at evoketherapy.com and tell me who who, if you're interested and, and, and really want to do it. And then you can go to the website to learn more. So there's the upcoming stuff there. We still don't have an apparent. During December, it's difficult for us to do a lot of the traveling people. We don't get attendance at these things. So we'll ramp up against it in January with some of these things. Our pursuits trips are available. You can go online and look at those for families and young adults. Please go to these six meetings. These, these can help with everything that I talked about today. Please follow us. If you follow Second Nature, please also, and you want to get our content, we're eventually going to be off the Second Nature social media. So please go and like us and follow us on our social media here. It's not just for fun. It's announcements. It's, it's articles. It's, of course, beautiful inspirational pictures and stories and so forth. So follow us at the various social media outlets there. There's the book. There's the. I actually used the Parent Alumni Foundation page today for a link. Somebody asked me for something. I went to it, looked up some books, sent them the link. So go there. It has books by topic. Same price as on Amazon. But if you buy here, it goes to the Alumni Foundation, and it helps to pay for people who can't afford treatment. All right. Any live questions on any topic, Michael? Taking care of yourself as a previous attendee of the Finding You Intensive in October. This is one of the best things I can recommend to take care of yourself. I did it to help myself and will most likely do another intensive to continue the work. I hope someone from this webinar will take the chance to go next week. You will not regret it, I promise. Thank you so much. And you know what? I, I see that there are a couple of you on here today. So it is, it's an amazing, I love it. It's an amazing healing opportunity, mindfulness, family of origin work, um, some psychoeducation, um, really getting into learning how to problem solve, see your relationships. But we, you know, we get into some deep stuff. So the only prerequisite for this one is that you're an adult. Uh, the last one we had half young adults and half older adults, parents, parent age. And it was wonderful, wonderful balance. So uh, we're doing that one again. So to clarify, depressed narcissism and paranoia is that paranoia is mostly negative about yourself, whereas depressed narcissism is is but positive and negative thoughts about the self. It's a self-centeredness. Depressed narcissism is Yalom's idea that, again, most of the time we associate narcissism with arrogance, right? But narcissism, narcissism also looks like I'm the center of attention. It must be about me, right? So, yeah, it's, it's negative. It's self-deprecating. It's my fault. They must be mad. I must have done something wrong, right? Uh, you know, it, 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 it's not positive, so it doesn't look inflated, but it's still self-centered, and it still comes from the narcissistic, narcissistic wound of childhood, which is, in early childhood, not being seen and attended to. And then we all, we all are on that scale, right? We all have some narcissistic traits that we, all of us do have some narcissistic traits that we're dealing with. My therapist says the best prevention or antidote to narcissism is listening to other people. If you can do that and see them and listen to them, you are both curing 
and preventing a narcissistic flare-up. So yeah, that's a, that's a depressed narcissism is negative for the self. All right, folks, we're going to wrap it up. Here is the next one. We're going to talk about transitioning, transitioning in general, but specifically planning for the step between evoke and whatever comes next. That'll be this Wednesday, December 2nd at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Hope to see you then. Have a great couple of days and I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye.